you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. John chapter 5, 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water, when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, what an absolute privilege it is to finally be able to join with you this morning, be able to share God's word with you. As Zach mentioned before, I'm Jimmy. I'm relatively new to the family here, so I imagine there's a whole bunch of you that I am yet to meet yet. And so if the question that's kind of spinning through your head at the moment, who exactly is this Jimmy guy? Well, I get that. I'm looking forward to meeting you. But I thought maybe as a way of kind of kick-starting our moment together in the Word. We might play a game uh, really quickly, chance to get to know me. Also, I'm the next-gen guy, as Zach said, so I'm allowed to play games. And we're going to play a game that we've been playing in City Kids for the last few weeks. It's called the ABC Game. All right, it's pretty simple. It works like this. There's going to be a multiple choice come up on the stage. If you think the answer is A, then you make an A. If you think the answer is B, make a B. If you think it's C, make a C. All right, that's pretty straightforward. And then we'll work out how many of us in the room get it right. Make sense? Yeah, all right, let's go. First question up on the screen is this. In what year was I born? Zach gave some of that away, maybe a little bit before. Was it 1998? Was it 1990? Or was it 1985? What year do you reckon I was born? A, B, or B, however you want it to be, or C. All right, here we go. The answer is C. I was born in 1985. What on? Big shout out to those of you who went B. I appreciate you. I think we're going to get along very well indeed. All right, next question. Which one of these is not Jimmy? Which one of these is not Jimmy? Question A, B, 
or C. All right, there we go. Make your selection. I imagine most of you are going to get this right, especially. It is, of course, B is not Jimmy. That's Leighton Hewitt. I have been mistaken for Leighton Hewitt a few times. True story. Once actually signed an autograph uh, on his behalf at the Australian Open. Anyway, I can tell you about that another time. All right, question number three. Here we go. Uh, Jimmy once wrote a song and sold it on iTunes, and it was called You Make Me the Man I Want to Be, Born to Fly, or Melbourne Lines. All right, here we go. A, B, C. The answer is B, Born to Fly. I wrote a song when I was a grade six teacher for my graduating grade sixes, a little gospel point to them to highlight there's more to life than perhaps education. Anyway, you can ask me more about that one time if you like. All right, here's the last one. My full name, the name on my birth certificate, is it A, James Michael Shakespeare Jensen? Is it B, Jimmy Robert Jensen? Is it C, James Eric Ronald Jensen? A, B, C... The answer is A. Oh, how about that? Yes. There you go. My uh, father's name is Michael, and my great-grandfather's surname is Shakespeare, and he is the man that my dad credits his prayers with my dad coming to faith in Christ. And so all of my siblings and I share Shakespeare in our names. Now, I don't know if that little moment there, that's all we've got time for today, by the way, folks. If you really like that, if you enjoyed it, you'll have to join the City Kids team. Uh, we play that regularly. You see what I did there? Always on that recruiting drive, Zach. Hey, I don't know if you kind of learned something new about me in that moment. I suspect most of you did at least learn something that you didn't before. Well, you know, today as we work through this passage, we work through this story here in John chapter 5, my hope is that on an infinitely more grand level, you might learn something new about Jesus. Regardless of your experience of church, regardless of your knowledge of the Bible, regardless of who you know Jesus to be, my prayer is today that you'll walk away with a fresh picture of Jesus. Because the question that's at the heart of this passage today, it's at the heart of all of John's gospel, is who is Jesus? It's the question the Jews asked there in verse 12. Who's the man? Who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is Jesus? It's perhaps the most significant question anyone can ask. And if you're here today, and that's the reason why you've come, because you're asking that question, who is Jesus? What a great Sunday. What a great series for you to be a part of, because we're going to keep coming back to that question again and again. We're going to keep coming back to it this morning as Jesus continuously reveals incredible truths about himself in this story. And so as we do that this morning, would you pray with me? Father God, our prayer this morning is simple. As we pause to explore your word together, would you speak to us? By your spirit, give us a willingness to listen. Would who you are and what you've done capture our hearts and capture our minds in such a way that it transforms how we live. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 5, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles there, open them up, turn them on. It'll also be on the screen. John chapter 5, verse 1. Read with me. John starts this section by saying this. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. John starts his story here the way he starts most of his stories, by anchoring it in a real time and a real place in history. It's part of his way of demonstrating that his stories are legit. During a feast of the Jews, a real time, something that happened at a specific time, Jesus went to Jerusalem, a specific place, and specifically to a pool known as Bethesda. Real time, real place. What John wants you to know is what he's about to tell you are real events. Who is Jesus? Well, for starters, he's a real person that lived in a real time in history. Uh, Read on with me, verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the sovereign Lord, the one who sees, who knows, and who chooses. See, John tells us that this pool that Jesus has come to, it's a place where a multitude, he says there in verse 3, of sick people have gathered, specifically in the hope that they might find healing here. You might have noticed as we were kind of reading through that before, that we went from verse 3 to verse 5, didn't uh, read verse 4. I don't know if you noticed that. But most modern translations, they put, like the one we've just read, the ESV, they put the uh, verse 4 down in the footnotes because scholars think maybe it was added in a little bit later. It's not in the original text. But even though it's not maybe in the original text, text, it does help us understand why so many sick people have gathered in this specific place. See, verse 4, it explains that there's this popular belief, this hope, that at this particular pool was a place where God would heal individuals. The belief was an angel would come down from heaven, stir up the waters, and if you were the first person to get into the waters when they were being stirred, then you would get healed. That's what that man is referring to in verse 7 when he responds to Jesus. So there's this mass group of sick people gathered around the pool, desperately hoping that it's going to be them. And John tells us in the midst of this multitude that Jesus identifies one man who he knew had been there for a long time. It's quite a stunning moment, really, isn't it? It's easy to miss, but where people might see a multitude, Jesus sees individuals. He sees and he knows. John's already been highlighting this reality in his gospel back in chapter 1, where Jesus sees Nathanael under the tree. Or in chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well and knows her story. You ever feel like you get lost in the multitude? Maybe in the schoolyard, dressed in the same uniform as everybody else. Or in a swipe right culture as you flick through Netflix on your own. Think, does anybody see me? It's easy to feel invisible, isn't it? 
while you're tiptoeing around the house, placing individual blocks of Duplo delicately into a tub, dressed in tracksuit pants and messy hair, hoping that you're not going to wake a child. On the one hand, thankful that nobody can actually see you, but on the other hand, thinking, nobody knows what I'm going through right now. Well, Jesus sees, and he knows. You're not invisible. Just like this man was not just another invalid, To Jesus, you're not just another profile picture. You're not another suit on the train. You're not another seat number in the Palace Barracks cinema. There's not a moment in your life that Jesus doesn't have intricate knowledge of because he's the word become flesh. He's the one who spoke you into existence. He's the one who spoke this man into existence. He sees him. He knows the struggle that he's faced. And as we discover as the story progresses, he knows the sin that grips this man's heart. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the sovereign Lord. He sees. He knows. And as John continues to demonstrate, he chooses Because although Jesus saw and knew every individual that was gathered there in the multitude, he chooses this one man. And he asks at the end of verse 6, do you want to be healed? Of course, the answer to the question is obvious. The man's response to Jesus makes that pretty plain. But the question that Jesus is asking here, it's less about finding out if the man wants to be healed as it is about demonstrating who's taking the initiative here. Jesus is the one asking the question. He sees. He knows. And he's the one choosing this man. Now, I don't know what sort of picture you had in your mind when you kind of pictured this man. This is how I pictured kind of like what uh, took place. I kind of pictured this guy a little bit like the old guy from the movie Up. You know, this sad story of like this really good-natured man who's been abandoned by everyone, 38 years, unable to get well, and Jesus, having compassion on a good old soul, chooses to heal him. It's the moments of justice, a win for the good guys. That's how I kind of pictured the story when I read it. I don't know if that's how you pictured it, but see, here's the thing. This guy's not a good old soul. As we work our way through the story and we look at his actions, he's not a lovely and yet somewhat unfortunate man. He's an ungrateful, pretty selfish dude, really. Perhaps the reason that nobody's been there to help him actually says more about him than it does about others. Because see, in verse 11, after he's been healed, he gets confronted by the Jews for picking up his mat. And he's very quick to deflect Blame. Hey, 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 don't blame me. The man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. Which, of course, as John highlights in verse 13, the healed man doesn't actually know the name of the person who healed him. Instead, John tells us in verse 14 that Jesus goes and finds him. And once again, demonstrating who's taking the initiative here. And then check it out. Once a man finds out that it was Jesus who healed him, he goes straight to the authorities and rats Jesus out. After his encounter with Jesus in verse 14, John says this in verse 15. He says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
The word told there in uh, verse 13, 15, it sort of carries this sense of to report something in the Greek. This man is reporting Jesus to the Jews. I mean, how ungrateful you got to be to report the person who healed you after 38 years of sickness. This dude is not like a dear old soul. There are some other words you might be tempted to use to describe him, but lovely old fella probably isn't appropriate. Kind of begs the question, though, doesn't it? Of the multitude of sick people at this pool, why did Jesus pick this guy? I mean, if Jesus really does see and he does know everyone, why not choose someone who's at least marginally bent towards gratitude? Why this guy? Well, because that's how the gospel works, isn't it? Jesus' choice of this man reveals a fundamental gospel truth. Who is Jesus? He's the sovereign Lord who chooses, not based on performance or character, but on grace. He chooses this man, not because the man deserves it, but because it demonstrates a much greater reality about why Jesus has come. He's come to bring redemption and forgiveness from sin to people who don't deserve it. It means there's no room for pride in the gospel. No matter how good you think you are, you have no basis to justify Jesus' choice of you. Yeah, as Christians, it can be easy to forget this sometimes. Sure, if anyone asks, we'd drop doctrine of original sin bombs, we'd quote Romans 3, we'd say, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But subtly... In the day-to-day life, it's easy just to let pride sneak in just a little bit. In our Bible knowledge, the people that we've led to Christ, the ministry that we're doing, subtly it can be easy to believe, as C.S. Lewis highlights in his screw tape letters, that we've run up a very favorable credit balance in God's ledger. You know, this church, this GC, it's pretty fortunate to have me, really. Given the gifts that I have, Jesus made a pretty good call picking me on his team. I mean, where would church be without me? Are you in danger of letting those thoughts just creep in? But see, in the same way that there's no room for pride in the gospel, there's also no room to say, I could never be chosen by Jesus because I just don't measure up. Is that a belief that stops you wholeheartedly trusting Jesus? Do you look at your own life, your mistakes, your regrets, your failed attempts to live up to being that better person that you want to be and think, I don't deserve to be loved by God? Well, the good news of the gospel is you're right. You don't deserve to be loved by God. But that's the whole point. It's not about you. In the same way that this man was chosen because it wasn't about him. It's about Jesus, the sovereign Lord, full of grace and mercy, who chooses to save people who don't deserve it. What does your heart need reminding today? That Jesus chooses, that he takes the initiative, not because of performance or character, but because of mercy and grace. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the healer, the one who heals and restores. Have a look with me, verses 8 and 9, as we read on in the story. 
Jesus says to him, this man, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus says seven words there in verse 8. But the contrast between the man's experience prior to those words and post them is out of this world, isn't it? 38 years of endlessly waiting for an unlikely healing in some stirred up water and Jesus speaks seven words and he picks up his bed and walks off. I mean, humanly speaking, that's impossible, right? I mean, I'm no physio. I know there's a few in the room, but I have spent enough time on the recovery table to know that you don't just go from not walking for 38 years to picking up your mat and walking after one dry needle appointment, let alone seven words. There's no human explanation for what happens here. I mean, imagine the level of muscular kind of deterioration that would have taken place in this man from not having walked for, well, longer than most of you have been alive. This man's sickness and brokenness has simply bowed the knee before the creator of the universe. At the words of Jesus, this man's body is completely restored. Isn't that absolutely unbelievable? That's incredible. And it's hard to imagine the life-changing sense of freedom that this man would have experienced in that moment. A couple of years ago, I broke my finger really uh, badly playing football. It took me about eight months of pretty intense kind of rehab and recovery. It was brutal. Uh, it felt like a lifetime, eight months. And for a period of time there, I wasn't sure if I was ever going to get back to playing football again. And so when I finally did get through that period of time and run out on that footy field again, the feeling was pretty amazing. But that's nothing compared to 38 years of not being able to walk. All that time trying to change the course of his life, trying to break the repetitive cycle that he's trapped in, but never quite getting there. Never quite feeling free. Maybe that description kind of sounds a little bit like a metaphor for your own life. An endless cycle of trying to find that experience of freedom, but never quite making it. You thought you got close a few times, the job promotion, the romantic relationship, the moment the house got renovated, when the kids finally moved out. You know, all moments that our culture kind of holds up, that's what's going to bring you freedom. But each time you get there, it never quite delivers the freedom that you dreamed that it would. As so you move on to the next thing, convinced that if you could just catch a break, it would be different. Does that feel like your life? Because as Jesus transforms this man's life by healing his body, it's a moment that points to something much greater. Jesus is the healer. Yes, healer of physical ailments, as we see in this story, but he's come to heal of something so much more significant than that. He's come to heal people of the effect of sin in their lives. It's what lies behind Jesus' second command to the man later on in verse 14. See, when Jesus says to the man later on, sin no more, it's an infinitely more glorious offer than take up your bed and walk. 
Because what Jesus wants to do for this man is so much more than a great physical healing. He wants to heal him of his sin. That's the whole message of John's gospel. It's the whole message of the Bible. Jesus is on his way to the cross to take the penalty of sin upon himself, to die and to rise again so that this man, so that you, so that I might experience the freedom of healing that is so much more glorious than walking for the first time in 38 years. As Peter, one of Jesus' followers and author of part of the New Testament writes, he says this, he says, He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the healer, the one who heals and restores people by setting them free from their sin. Do you know freedom like this? Because Jesus holds the question out to you today. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to have your sin forgiven, your relationship with God restored? Can you hear that call of Jesus today? If you are, come and find forgiveness and freedom like you've never known. If that is you today, I'd love to chat with you later. Come find Zach. Come find Mike. Well, there are so many people here this morning who have experienced the healing that comes with the forgiveness of sins. This room is full of people who would love to pray with you. If that's you this morning, who is Jesus? Jesus is the healer the one who heals and restores. But Jesus is also the Son of God who is rejected and opposed. See, at this point in the text, here at verse 9, we see a pretty big shift. And it all hinges on those words at the end of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. I don't know if you've ever seen an MMA kind of boxing press conference before where kind of two fighters stand face to face before each other. There's this kind of like tension in the room. You know, they're eyeing each other off. And it's fine right up until a point that somebody kind of crosses the line. And then when they do cross the line, it's on for young and old. Well, that's kind of what's been going on so far in John's gospel with Jesus and the Jewish rulers. See, Jesus and the Jewish rulers, they've been face to face. There's tension, there's uncertainty in the air. But healing on the Sabbath, that's Jesus crossing the line. It's now on for young and old, and it's no accident. Jesus didn't happen to walk past this pool on his Sabbath afternoon stroll and suddenly think, you know what, disciples, I'm going to heal someone today. I'm feeling a healing happening. Come on, guys, let's go heal someone. No, this isn't spur-of-the-moment stuff. This is 100% intentional. Just like Jesus' chaotic interruption of the temple, the trading in the temple, Jesus has intentionally, on the Sabbath, gone to a place where the sick gather and healed someone, knowing the Sabbath rules and knowing the outcome that it's going to create. He is setting up a showdown. Sabbath rules or Jesus' rules? Who's in charge here? 
It's a theme that's going to now run throughout John's gospel. Who is in charge here? Jesus is going to continue to do these signs, but instead of faith, rejection and opposition from the religious leaders is going to come and it's going to grow and it's going to intensify and eventually Jesus is going to lose his life because of it. But why is this an issue? Is anyone asking that question? Like, why? why is this a problem? Like, who in their right mind makes up a rule to ban someone being healed on a particular day of the week? I mean, it seems a little random and rather outrageous, doesn't it? Well, it is outrageous. It's not completely random. See, there's this significant kind of moment in Jewish history where God's people were exiled to a place called Babylon. And they were exiled for things like breaking the Sabbath, for worshipping idols, and not following God's law. And so post that kind of exile, the leaders are determined to ensure that this doesn't happen again, which kind of makes sense, really. Except the byproduct of that determination is that they set themselves up as the Sabbath police. Instead of seeing the Sabbath as a way of understanding what it means to find rest in God, they got completely lost in adding their own things to the laws, which bizarrely included not being able to be healed. See, they're so consumed by being the Sabbath police, about being the ones who control the rules... But when they discover that this man has been healed, they can't even celebrate the win with him. You notice that? I mean, imagine being so caught up with rule keeping that when a man who experienced an out of this world, life changing, 38 years walking for the first time moment, and your biggest concern is that it doesn't fit with your religious practices. I mean, isn't that absolutely absurd? And what a contrast to Jesus, right? Because where Jesus sees a man unable to help himself, the Jews don't seem to see a person at all, just a religious convention broken. And where's the compassion? Where's the care, the concern, the celebration and the love for this man and what he's just experienced? How does anyone become like that? What is wrong with these guys? But pause for a moment. Because are we so guilt-free when it comes to this? I mean, have you ever walked away from a Sunday so concerned by something that happened? Maybe a song that you don't like was played. Maybe something was said in the talk or the way the Sunday was led. You've been so consumed by something that the people around you sort of become invisible. People, perhaps, whose lives are being transformed by Jesus. Perhaps they're there, desperate to know who Jesus is, and you have the answers, but you haven't even noticed them. I've done that. Probably more times than I care to admit. More times than I've probably realized. I've let my church preferences and practices so consume me that I've lost my ability to see people brushing past them on my mission to catch the music coordinator before they leave, head down, jotting down my notes that will form my email or my uh, staff meeting discussion. As Josh Moody writes in his commentary on this passage, it's easier than any of us will want to admit to refashion truly biblical commitments 
into restrictive human-centered tokens of pride and communal distinction. Don't get me wrong. Doctrine matters. Practices matter. The Bible is full of passages that remind us that it's really important that what we do is in line with what Jesus commands us to be doing. You know, even here in this story, if the Jewish leaders had been questioning whether or not healing on the Sabbath was pleasing to God or not, that wouldn't have been a bad thing. But they're not here questioning. They're condemning. This isn't truth-seeking. It's self-justification. And as John will continue to unpack throughout this gospel, this self-justification, it blinds them to the reality that the God that they claim to worship is right in front of them, working before them, and they can't even see it. Where is the church? Have our biblical commitments become tokens of pride that hinder our ability to see God working? Where do you and I need to return to God in repentance that we might see with fresh eyes what God is doing among us Because God is working. As John concludes this whole part of the story, Jesus is working. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God who cannot be stopped. In the face of this rejection, in the face of the opposition, John records Jesus' response there in verse 17 and 18. Read it with me again. John writes this. He says, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, my father is working, and I am working. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be deterred. I'm not going to be Stopped. I'm not going to stop working to accomplish all that my Father and I have prepared to achieve. From eternity past to eternity future, God is working and he cannot be stopped. So don't lose heart. You know, as the band comes back up on the stage, do you look around at the state of the church and think, how is Jesus working? Doors are closing. Scripture's being abandoned. Nobody seems to be listening. Well, the truth is Jesus, the Son of God, is working. So keep praying for God's church. You've been sharing the good news of Jesus, of the gospel with people around you, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe work colleagues. They don't seem to be listening. They don't seem to be taking any notice. Maybe they're even rejecting you, and you're starting to lose Well, Jesus is working. So don't stop proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Are your kids growing up less and less expressing interest in Jesus? And you, you wonder, has God stopped working? You know, when I was seven and I could tuck them into bed and they begged me to read another Bible story, I could see God working then, but not anymore. Well, dear friends, don't lose heart. Jesus, the Son of God, he sees you, he knows you, chose you, and saved you, and he is working. No opposition, 
No persecution, no cure, sorry, no culture or person can stop Jesus from achieving all that he has planned. So don't give up hope. Judah, there's no greater comfort or hope for the Christian, both as an individual and for us as a church, than knowing that Jesus, the sovereign Lord, the healer, the Son of God, cannot be stopped. Because this Jesus here in John chapter 5, he's the Jesus who conquered the grave, defeated sin and death, who reigns at the right hand of God. And as this cosmic clash of kingdoms comes front and center in John's gospel, Jesus' simple words here in John chapter 5, 17, simple and yet victorious words are the hope that we hold on to. My Father is working and I am working. Nothing and nobody can stop Jesus from accomplishing all that he has prepared to do. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God has. He is. And he will continue to work to see that reality take place for his glory and by his grace for the redemption of his church. Hey, let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. You're the sovereign Lord. You are the healer. You are the son of God who gave up his life that we might find freedom and forgiveness in you. Help us to know this truth deeply and richly in our hearts that we might turn to you in repentance, that we might not lose heart holding on to the hope that can only be found in you, our risen and reigning King. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.